Bakum. Uh, we believe the Bible here. We believe it's God's Word. And consequently, we preach it, we listen to it, and we submit to it. And so uh, that just gives you a little bit of, uh, I guess, a paradigm to work with as you uh, approach listening today, is we're going to be uh, settling into the book of Mark, which we've been walking through for about a year now. And uh, we're up through chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. So let's set the stage a little bit uh, so we can understand the context into which we are stepping once again this morning. This is the second of three tests in chapter 12, if you remember, uh, that come on the heels of Jesus' prophetic parable, which was given in response to a question about his authority all the way back in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Uh, If you remember, uh, the uh, Sanhedrin had come, the religious establishment had come to Jesus, and they asked him after he had overturned tables in the temple and the like, they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus responded with a question. He said, if you can tell me if John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven or from earth, then I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. They looked around at one another, and they shrugged and said, I don't know, because they were caught between a rock and a hard place. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by, the, by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he proceeded to not tell them explicitly, but make very clear by what authority he was doing these things. He, he told the parable, that prophetic parable of the wicked tenants, wherein he put himself into the story as the beloved son of God who was rejected and killed by the wicked tenants whom were the Pharisees. And they knew, they knew it was him, as we saw in verse 12 of chapter 12, because they go away dejected. Further, in that same parable, he quoted Psalm 118, which was, if you remember, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 11. That was the psalm that people shouted at him as he was coming into Jerusalem for the Passover week. Remember, they were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Hosanna. Uh, Jesus quotes from that same psalm, and so he's kind of with a wink and a smile saying, I won't tell you by what authority I'm doing these things, but I am the Messiah. I am the beloved Son that's uniquely sent by the Father. And so the Sanhedrin, they had withdrawn and decided, we need to come up with a new strategy to entrap this Jesus. He's stirring up the pot, if you will. They've had enough of the wonderkind rabbi from Galilee And so they're going to send three waves of opposition at Jesus, three challenges to his authority. We saw the first last week when they asked Jesus that question about taxes. And if you remember, they wanted Jesus to kind of feel like he was in a dilemma. If he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he was going to lose popularity among the people because they would have saw that as a submission to uh, the Roman oppression. Or if he said, no, don't pay taxes, well, then they would have taken him to Caesar and had him strung up on charges of insurrection, which, if you remember, in Luke 23, that's one of the false charges brought against Jesus. But we remember Jesus uh, once again played the part of the roadrunner and cast the Pharisees and the Herodian in the role of Wiley Coyote and and kind of trapped them in their own rhetorical device. You see, it was meant to uh, undermine his authority, and it actually served to underline his authority as he brilliantly defeated their question. And and we summarized it last week by saying Jesus said, hey, give what is made in Caesar's image to Caesar and what is made in God's image to God. 
And then we, we summarized that in our main idea and said that Christians submit to earthly authorities in light of God's, Jesus' ultimate authority. And so Jesus validated his authority and his power in that first challenge to it. And, and today, we're going to have a second challenge to his authority, this time from the Sadducee division of the Sanhedrin. And I've tried to capture the, the main idea with this sentence. God has revealed himself and his power through his word and in his son. God has revealed himself and his power through his word and his son. And, and my goal this morning is to exhort you to know God and his power through his word and his son. Five parts today. Uh, Sadducee, which I'm not sure if it's a pun or a wordplay of some type, but I like it. So it's Sadducee, brother-in-law marriage, two wrongs make you wrong, tears in heaven, question mark, and the present tense. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into the word together. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would quiet our hearts right now, that you would still our concerns that we might hear your voice speak softly and tenderly to those of us that, that need your soft touch this morning, and that you might speak harshly to those of us that need to be rebuked. Pray that you would help us to not necessarily remember each and every word that is spoken here this morning, but to have the impression of your word left on our hearts so that our lives are truly changed by what you have to say to us. Father, speak today. Amen. Let's look at verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees are a small sect of priestly and wealthy aristocrats, and they've got significant political and temple influence. In fact, they dominated the Sanhedrin, and they're really sympathetic to Hellenism, the Herods, and to Rome. So Jews don't really care for them a whole, whole lot, even though they run the temple. Uh, the only part of the, pen of the Bible that they actually believe to be the Word of God, I think this is, is relevant, is the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch. And so if Moses didn't write it, they weren't really interested in it as being authoritative. Uh, another thing you should know about the Sadducees is that they denied the existence of angels, and they had a really robust doctrine of, of human free will. They, they denied God's sovereignty. In fact, they didn't even believe in the immortality of the soul or in a future bodily resurrection. As you see in this verse, the historian Josephus writes this of them. The doctrine of the Sadducees is this. Souls die with bodies. That's it. When, when your lights go out from your body, it's dark and it's finished. So you might have studied the, the Sadducees this way in Sunday school. The, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe eternal life could be. That's how I learned it anyway. It's a little rhyme that stuck with me my whole life. And so now when you think of the Sadducees, I hope you think they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a future resurrection. And it struck me as I, I thought about the Sadducees this week that they're not so different from uh, lots of folks in our own culture, right? Uh, that They deny life after death. In fact, I think that they would heartily agree with uh, Richard Dawkins when he writes in his book, The God Delusion, uh, that it's ridiculous to think that someone could rise from the dead. 
See, the commitment of the Sadducees to annihilation precluded any idea of the supernatural resurrection. It ignores God's infinite power. And and perhaps, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, perhaps you can relate to the Sadducees uh, on this. That you, you dismiss Christianity out of hand because you are committed to this kind of materialistic view of reality and you find the idea of a man rising from the dead to be absurd. So I'd like to challenge you on this. Consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels and think about the arguments for his resurrection. I mean, if you go beyond the Gospels into the New Testament, we find Paul challenging those that would question the resurrection. Ask around. There are eyewitnesses that have seen this happen. Ask about it. Validate it. We see the men that spent their lives with him give their lives in dedication to him to preach the gospel. They really believed he was the Son of God. I mean, his own brother believed he was the Son of God. I don't, I don't know about you. I would never be able to convince my siblings of that if it, if it weren't true. There are really good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead which means that you should take Christianity seriously. I'm not going to recount all the many arguments now, but instead uh, recommend some books to you uh, if you're a non-Christian and you really are interested in these things. I think the the most thorough treatment of the resurrection is an N.T. Wright's work, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, Or if you're looking for something smaller, uh, I think Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter is a great book. And if you're skeptical about the existence of God altogether, I cannot recommend Timothy Keller's The Reason for God to you enough. Check these books out. Read them in conjunction with your Bible. Uh, In addition to these things, I want to press you, non-Christian, to think about how your current worldview answers some of your deepest longings and your deepest desires. So I think that the resurrection of Jesus and, and the future resurrection of his people gives explanation to some of those deepest longings. I think that the message of the gospel explains that uh, why we really enjoy movies that end with happily ever after. It explains why you've always felt like you were made for something more. It explains that search for satisfaction because you were made for God. You were made for eternity, and he has written eternity on your heart. That's where these desires come from. It's why men have always looked for a way to live forever. It's only in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that you will find answers to these questions, your intellectual questions and your heart's deepest longings. So it is really worth it for you to consider Jesus Christian, uh, as I thought about this and how I might be Sadducee-like myself, uh, it it came to me that sometimes I often live as a functional materialist. Look for, uh, and maybe you can relate that you, look for your best life now instead of trusting that Jesus has promised that the best is yet to come, that our home is not here but, but in the future. So I began testing my heart this week, thinking about how I responded to some of the least amount of of suffering from my phone or internet not functioning properly, how angry I would find myself, or to how I would respond to something like death. And so I ask you, how do you respond to suffering and adversity? Do you grieve as one without hope, or as one who knows that the dead in Christ 
will rise just as he rose. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And they attempt to demonstrate why such a belief is preposterous. And so they bring up leveret or brother-in-law marriage in the second part of verse 18 and on down through 23. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, they're giggling at this point. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, also the woman died. <laughs> in, the, in the resurrection, Jesus, not. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as, as wife. See, the purpose of the question is to make a mockery of Jesus and those who believe in the bodily resurrection. The Sadducees are looking to best Jesus theologically by showing his teaching to be silly. And to do this, they're they're making use of leveret or brother-in-law marriage. If you remember, we came across this concept in Genesis 38 with Onan, right? Uh, Ur died, and then Onan was supposed to father Ur's children by Ruth. It meant that when by Ruth, <laughs> it meant that when he married Tamar, that his children that he would father by Tamar would be considered Ur, so that Ur's line could continue on. Came across it when we studied the book of Ruth as well. And so if you remember, leveret marriage was a practice whereby a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother. And this was in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother and ensure the establishment of his deceased brother's property and inheritance all within the family line. James Edwards writes in his commentary this, Leveret marriage was a compensatory social custom designed to prevent intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles and to preserve honor and property within a family line in cases where a woman's husband was deceased. It also functioned, it was very much a loving provision for God. Women were not well respected in the society, and a woman that was widowed was usually not going to be very well off. And and so this provision enabled her uh, to be taken care of, as well as the brother's lineage to be continued. And so the Sadducees bring up this, this concept and create this elaborate and somewhat comical scenario as a reductio ad absurdum. They're they're employing an argument in order to show that belief in the resurrection is simply absurd. The question uh, that they ask is actually based on the truth that monogamy rather than polygamy in marriage is, is the ideal. It's God's design, and they're right on that account. And so they go a step further with their logic and say, uh, if the resurrection is like life is now, when this woman is raised from the dead, she had seven husbands, and so she would be stuck in heaven the rest of eternity as a polygamist with multiple husbands. See how ridiculous that is? It's against God's design, yet she would be married to, to seven guys in heaven. And so this resurrection idea, it's, it's silly. It doesn't, it doesn't even work. And they're saying that this is a scenario that shows the foolishness of believing in a future resurrection. Look, look at the problems it would cause Jesus. God is, is clearly too smart for that. And I guess extra, uh, the books of Moses, they don't even really mention future resurrection. And so it just it doesn't exist. You're wrong. And they think they've, they've got Jesus, who's already spoken of his own resurrection three times at this point. They, they think they've got him cornered. 
But he's going to teach them that resurrection isn't silly, but certain. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. My translation of this is Jesus says, Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? This is a, a question that's farcical, and Jesus immediately confronts their error. He kind of dismisses it out of hand, if you will. He's not going to take time to be politically correct and say, well, there are a number of positions about the future resurrection, and here is position A and position B, and here is my position. He doesn't take the time to explain it to them. He rebukes them and says they are wrong. And one of the things that strikes me about how Jesus behaves with uh, religious people, he just is never as is as tender and compassionate with them as he is with irreligious people, right? Woman at the well, tender, compassion. Uh, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, those that are supposed to be religious leaders that are pretending to be devoted to God, he's really harsh with them. He, He gets on them right away. And so he comes and says, you are wrong. And then he goes further and says, not only are you wrong about this, but you don't understand, you don't even know the scriptures or the power of God. I mean, this is an intense scene. The, the metaphorical gauntlet has been thrown down, and in my imaginations, the, the Sadducees are getting their brass knuckles on, and Jesus is reaching for that whip that he still has with him uh, from his earlier temple cleansing or clearing. Now, they're not going to fight in, in the temple, but, but I want you to understand that these are fighting words from Jesus. I mean, no one has ever dared to talk to the Sadducees like this before, especially not in the temple. This is their house. How dare he disrespect them? The audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees, it it would be like somebody claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. Scripture and power, I mean, that was in the Sadducees' wheelhouse. That was their stock in trade, the, the two matters in which they majored. And Jesus is telling them, you know nothing of either. I mean, I wish, I wish I could have seen their faces. Imagine it. They think they are masters of the Scripture and of the power of God. And Jesus says to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? I mean, they must have just been befuddled. Jesus says that the Sadducees are in error because they do not know the Scripture or God's power. I do want to point out, I think the two are intimately related <clears throat> God's power and scripture. Because it's, it's my belief that God's power is most readily experienced through his word. I mean, this, after all, is how every Christian experience starts and endures. We become Christians by hearing the word and by being brought to life by the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus as irresistibly beautiful, and therefore we unite ourselves with him by faith. If you, if you don't know the word, if you hear the word without hearing, not going to experience his power. As a, a sidebar here, I don't want you to fall. I do want you to experience the power of God. That I am saying that and will continue to say that. But I don't want you to fall prey to the myth that experiencing God's power requires some hyper-emotional adventure. I mean, t- too many times I've come across Christians who are discouraged uh, because they've devoted themselves to, to chasing down these emotional highs instead of committing themselves to a real relationship with Jesus. I mean, friends, uh, like marriage, the, the Christian life, it's not one big, long honeymoon. It's, it's hard work in the ordinary. 
good relationship with God, it's, it's not having your heart go pitter-patter every time you, you pray or read or sing a song. It's being in a committed, covenant relationship with God. It's trusting Scripture and your position in Christ more so than your feelings. It's spending time in prayer when you don't feel like it. It's repenting and forgiving quickly and often. The Christian life, like a good marriage, will have romance and very good times, and it's very hard. There are seasons where you are going to feel like it is so easy to practice God's presence that it comes as a second nature to you, and there will be seasons where you feel like he is absent. But I want to encourage you, even feeling the absence of his presence is evidence that it was there to begin with. Think the healthy Christian life, the healthy Christian experience of the power of God begins with the word of God. And so we ought to take time to devote ourselves to the word of God. And we get to know him more by reading and by praying, by spending time with his people. And and I think we must do it wisely. Because misinterpreting the scriptures, as the Sadducees do here, it will lead to a distorted view of God. And it always leads to your God being too small and too impotent to be the God of the Bible. So the question I ask at this point is, is, do you know your Bible? Have you experienced the power of God? Let me offer a few suggestions as to how you, you might do this a little better or more consistently in your life. First, read good books by good authors that are about God. As much as I love Harry Potter, you can't read that all the time. You want to pick up some theologies. We have a reading list on the church website to help you with that. Or uh, If you're not into that, you can ask me, and, and I would love to give you personal suggestions. Another thing you can do is read ahead. I mean, we've been working through Mark for almost a year now, and uh, next week, I think we're going through verse 27 this week, and next week we'll, we'll pick up at verse 28. Well, not next week, Nathaniel will be here. But typically, you can know where we're going to be in the Bible and read ahead and pray about that so that you come in here uh, not blind to the Scripture, but have already soaked in the Word a little bit. You have your own thoughts and your own questions, and you're able to more actively engage with the sermon. Thirdly, I, I want to encourage you to pray. In my opinion, prayer is the most difficult and the most rewarding part of the Christian life. I mean, even if it's just for a short time in the morning before you get out of bed or on your way home from work or to work or if you're retired while you're drinking your coffee, just make prayer a pattern in your life. I mean, make a practice of praying through our directory in the back. Just pick one person each day and say, I'm going to pray for them today. Pray for the preaching and and for our service. Pray that God would help you to know him through his word. Fourthly, spend time around one another and talk about the things of God. I mean, you you can do this throughout the week. You can do this at lunch today after service. Just talk about the sermon. Talk about what God is doing in your life. And you'll get to know him more by spending time with him. You'll get to experience his power. In the rest of the section, Jesus continues to correct the Sadducees. First, in verse 25, we're going to see he corrects them about the nature of the afterlife. And second, in verses 26 and 27, he's going to correct them about their own scriptures and the nature of God himself. So look with me at verse 25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage 
but are like angels in heaven. We're going to deal with the, the like angels part first because I think it's easier. Uh, the comparison here to angels is intentional. It's correcting another theological error of the Sadducees, which is to deny angels and demons. They, they don't believe in those. And so Jesus is saying, hey, heaven's actually a little bit, you've got the picture wrong. Uh, we're going to be like angels, and so marriage isn't going to exist. And, and like angels is important uh, because so often I've heard people say uh, upon the death of a loved one, well, she is my angel now, or he, he's an angel now, and, and we're not going to become angels. Right? We're going to become like angels. We're going to become like them in the sense that we're no longer going to procreate and we, we will never die. That's how we'll be like angels. We're not, we're not going to become them. In fact, we will judge them, Paul tells us. Now let's deal with the first part. In heaven, there will be no marriage. And this, this verse, if you read this ahead of time, was probably the one that caught your attention right away. And that makes sense. It makes sense that some of you, uh, the, the idea of not having marriage in heaven would make you sad. Some of you really love your spouses. Others of you are breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief. <laughs> it's getting rough. Man. Marriage isn't forever. Just kidding. Marriage, though, it's not forever. But it's, marriage not existing in heaven is not going to make you sad. There aren't going to be any tears in heaven, to quote the great Eric Clapton. Uh, no tears in heaven. But the natural question does arise, I think, when you read a verse like this. Will, will I know my spouse? Will, will I know my friends or, or my family? For some of you, well, what about sex? And on down the line. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these questions, but I'm going to try to answer some of them really quickly here and ask you to keep in mind these are not main things or plain things, and so there is some conjecture involved. First, I would say you will know people in heaven. I think in heaven, your relationships will be enhanced rather than eradicated. Secondly, marriage and sexuality, uh, they're, they're going to give way to greater and newer pleasures. It's uh, a little bit like an infant giving up nursing for solid food. That milk seems really great at a young age, and then you know, somebody gives them, I don't know, chocolate or peanut butter. The infant says, this is really, really good, and eventually moves away from nursing, or maybe you want to think about a teenager who gives up his morning Pop-Tart in favor of donuts and some coffee, or uh, like a steak dinner and a nice red wine compared to uh, a PB&J or um, some kale, right? The point is, I think James Edwards is better at helping you get a sense of this. He writes this, the glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life then can butterflies be compared to caterpillars? Present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concert or the Grand Canyon at sunset. Feel the weight of how glorious heaven is going to be. The resurrection life is a greater than equation. It's greater than everything else now. It's better in every way than your life is now. Resurrection, it's more than resuscitation. It's a, it's a transformation. It's the reversal of death. It's the gift of a new body to enjoy 
the new heavens and the new earth. And every good gift now, every gift we have serves to point us to the greater realities to come later. They serve to point us to God's goodness. We see but a dim reflection of the glories to come in the next life now. And marriage is one of those pictures of the reality that is to come. When that reality comes, marriage becomes no longer necessary. Uh, Think of it like a soldier uh, who's stationed overseas. He carries a picture with him of his family in his pocket, and every chance he gets, he's stealing a glance at that picture, longing for his home. Now, when when the soldier returns home and, and reunites with his family, it wouldn't make any sense for him to ignore them in favor of looking at the picture. The reality is greater than the picture. So the picture gives way to the reality. Likewise, marriage is a picture that anticipates the reality of our final resurrection and union with Jesus Christ. Points us to him. Uh, One of the amazing things I think I've realized as I've read through Mark, it it seems like God is always using our, our circumstances now to prepare us for eternity or to prepare us for, for something later, but I noticed that they all seem to disappear. Right all the way back in, in chapter 3, Jesus uh, it said, Who now are my mother and my brothers, but those who, do, those who do the will of God my Father? And he ties himself more to those that are in Christ than his own mother and brothers. He says, My allegiance is here. My identity is here with the people of God. And one of the things I recognized this week is that, that marriage and family and singleness, they, they all give way to a greater glory in heaven. But I, I think these things giving way reiterate Jesus' teaching that our most important commitment, our most foundational identity in this life is as the bride of Christ, as the church, because that identity is eternal. You catch that? Like, I am Chelsea's husband now. People identify me by that. I'm Elliot's father now. Those designations in eternity are going to fade. But being in Christ, being a member of Christ's church, that endures forever. It's eternal. I do want to encourage you that that right now God is using your current circumstances to prepare you for the wedding ceremony of the Lamb. And and it is amazing. Marriages now, they point us to the greater marriage that is to come. So as a a side of application, if you're married, you only have a short spot to be married. This is like a blip on the radar. Don't waste your marriage. Don't get caught up in sin and in silliness. Don't let sin interrupt you from leveraging your marriage for the glory of God. Don't let sin stop you from serving and being a Christ-like husband or a Christ-like wife. Single people. Oftentimes, I think the church is guilty of perpetuating this myth that you've lived an incomplete life until you are married and you have the right number of kids and and all these things. And they tell you, don't don't worry, honey, you're single now, but God's got someone special for you. He's, He's preparing you for that future mate. Listen, Maybe, maybe not. Paul says that singleness is a gift in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're single, the temporary nature of marriage should alert you to the fact that it is not the be-all, end-all of happiness. Jesus is. So don't waste your singleness either. 
it too is a gift from God. And you ought not waste the time you have now daydreaming about how one day you could have a husband or a wife and things will be good and then you will be truly happy. No. Leverage your time now in this season of life to bring God glory. Don't let the idolization of marriage distract you from happily following Jesus. The best and last wedding that any of us will ever attend, it will come on the other side of the grave. There's only going to be one marriage in heaven. Christ will be wedded to his church, and it will be marvelous. You should be longing for that day. I mean, nobody in heaven is going to be saying, Oh, I I wish I could be married. No, in heaven, the words, I wish, will cease to exist. You know, I do think, too, how we think about heavenly things in verses like verse 25 can expose just how earthly-minded even we can be as Christians. I think we're tempted to, to think things like, well, if there's no marriage in heaven, if there's no sex in heaven, I don't even know if I want to go. It's probably not that good, maybe not the place for me. Have you heard the phrase, uh, she's so heavenly-minded, she's of no earthly use? I think what's usually more true of us, of me, is that we're so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly use. Maybe I'm the only one, but but I often worry and obsess over the tiniest of things. Get so focused on my week or my day here and now, that I lose sight of what is important. I routinely need to hear Jesus' rebuke of Peter for myself. You're setting your mind on the things of earth rather than the things of God. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How about you? Are you so earthly-minded that you are no heavenly good? What is your mind set on? I mean, living as if the resurrection is not a certainty is to deny the power of God. And it makes us guilty of the same theological error as the Sadducees. So I want to encourage you to look forward to the resurrection. Have an eternal perspective instead of an earthly one. This verse, verse 25 Uh, Jesus uses it to address and dismiss the question of the Sadducees and to teach us a little bit about heaven. It gives us a rare glimpse into glory. Jesus simply in this verse corrects their assumptions about the resurrection by pointing out that, that marriage isn't going to exist in heaven. They've got it all wrong. And now Jesus is going to show them that the doctrine of resurrection is in fact in the 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 Pentateuch, what they would consider their own scriptures. And he's going to teach them about the nature of God. Look with me at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I mean, Jesus here doles out some sarcasm of his own. Haven't you boys read Exodus? Don't you, you know the story about the bush, right? Surely. 
Did you miss that one? I mean, he could have answered their question by quoting an array of Old Testament scriptures that uh, teach the trajectory of the resurrection, but he deliberately chooses to show the Sadducees the doctrine of the resurrection from their own scriptures, from the five books that they think are authoritative. He says, you think you know Moses so well, I'm going to show you you don't know him that well because he is talking about resurrection even here. He's going to defeat them on their own turf. Jesus wants to show everyone that these wolves of Wall Street really do know nothing of finance. So what is going on in the passage which Jesus quotes in Exodus 3? We read it together earlier. Remember, God is revealing himself to Moses by way of a burning bush that's not consumed even though it's while burning. During the encounter, God calls Moses to lead and deliver his people. God identifies himself as the God who revealed himself through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as the God who has made promises to them and and later identifies himself. He tells Moses his name as I am. You see, Jesus is teaching the Sadducees that God's nature is eternal. Likewise, his promises are eternal. The relationship that God enters into with his people is eternal. Sinclair Ferguson comments, God's promise to save his people would be of no significance if it could be destroyed by death. I mean, Jesus' point here is is simple. God is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. God is their God in the present tense. Though they died physically, they are alive spiritually right now, waiting the resurrection. You see, to deny the resurrection is to deny the character of God. That's what I think Jesus is getting at here. God doesn't make tawdry or cheap promises. He makes eternal promises, and he keeps them. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus has once again refuted those who sought to undermine his authority, and called their own authority into question. He is infinitely wise. His authority is unparalleled. In all of these encounters, we see Jesus' authority is challenged, and then he proves himself time and again supremely authoritative. And with each encounter, with each lesson, he is provoking the events that will lead to his death on the cross more and more. He provokes these events so that he can answer finally the question about how a holy and just God can rescue a rebellious and evil people. So he can answer the question, how can a holy and just God give those that have earned death life? So they can answer the question, do the dead rise? How? Grace. God saves sinners. Those that have done wrong, people like you and I, God saves by becoming a man and living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. Jesus saves us from the wrath that we deserve and the death we have chosen by substituting himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins and by giving to us his perfect life. He credits to us his righteousness and he takes from us our debt and our sin when we put our faith in him. How do we know he has authority to forgive sins? How do we know he has the power to raise the dead? How do we know he can keep his promise and bring us into heaven? 
because he's not done answering the Sadducees' question here. No, Jesus has a final answer about the authority by which he does these things. He has a final answer to the question of the Sadducees. He has a final answer about his power to forgive sins. He has a final answer about his power over death. And his final answer is an empty tomb. Jesus is alive. He is the Savior of all who repent and believe in him. He is God in the present tense. The resurrection to come is not silly, but certain. Jesus is who he says he is, and he keeps his promises. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you are secure with him. And your resurrection is as certain as he is sitting at the right hand of God right now. Church, let us have an eternal perspective. Let us know God. Let us know his word. Let us know his power. Experience it. And look forward to the things that are to come. Let us submit ourselves to Jesus' authority over life and death. Let us trust in the promises he has given to us. And he has promised us heaven and his very self. In Revelation, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he started making things new right now with you and with me. Friends, the tomb is empty. And the throne is occupied. Let us rejoice together this morning as we take the cup and the bread together in anticipation of the return of Christ and the renewal of all things. Amen.